how do you keep pace when the sports rights are getting so high? And if the sports rights get so high, and that's what you're fighting for, because that's really what drives the business, where are you going to make the cuts elsewhere? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly. It's Monday, May 22nd, and today I'm joined by my partner, Dylan Byers, who has all the inside information on what's really going on in Burbank as Disney contemplates sending ESPN out into the wilderness. Is this the beginning of a sale process or just a simple DTC spin? And then naturally, Dylan and I talk about what's going on inside Hudson Yards. It's been a week since CNN's town hall with Donald Trump, and yet anxieties are still high, and there are mortal frustrations about what's really going on in the network. Dylan and I will get into it. And we'll also talk about The Messenger, a new media company from Jimmy Finkelstein and Richard Mad Dog Beckman that aims to be the upscale New York Post of our time. Is that what our times need? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back to the Powers That Be on Monday, May 22nd, Media Monday, and I'm here with Dylan Byers, the jack of this trade, while we fill in for Peter Hamby, who's still cavorting around South Africa. Dylan, unbelievably busy couple of days in your world. Obviously, the CNN town hall fallout continues. The world is still reacting to the the Messenger's debut. But we're going to start with a, a very quintessential Puck story. You and I were texting each other feverishly when this news dropped last Thursday about Disney preparing to launch an ESPN DTC app. Uh, seems like the first step in a sort of ESPN maturity journey uh, as uh, uh, maybe not its own company, but its own uh, shingle on the Disney brand. Anyway, we don't have to get into the future and what it means right now, but t- tell me what you're hearing. I know you've talked to everyone and you've done a ton of reporting on this, had a great piece last week. What, what does this say about the Iger mind state of ESPN? Well, look, I, I think this is sort of the big iceberg that the that Disney and all of its competitors and everyone who has a linear television business has been sort of heading toward for a long time. And, uh, you know, in many ways, like 
they are just sort of always getting closer to this moment at which they will have to take the flagship ESPN channel and all of the great sports rights they have, the Monday Night Football, NBA, call, you know, college football playoffs, and then move that wholesale onto streaming. And the, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported last week that there was a name for this now inside the company, which is Project Flagship. My, my conversations suggest more that perhaps this that's just the shorthand for the conversation that uh, Iger and Jimmy Pitaro and before Pitaro, John Skipper have been having for a very long time about that inevitable day when they will have to move the flagship property direct to consumer. In my reporting, you go back, the conversation about around this really starts back in 2014 when Disney, like everyone else, was seeing that the traditional TV business was starting a long decline and, and that it was never going to end and that the death of the linear business was perhaps prolonged, but nevertheless inevitable. And it was around then that Kevin Mayer, the chief strategist at Disney then under Bob Iger, asked Skipper to start putting together running models for what this would look like. How would you do this if you wanted to move ESPN? Not not in the ESPN Plus, like we've got, you know, Syria B and cricket games, whatever, like, but the real, the flagship product. And they, so I, I spoke with a number of Disney executives last week, current and former, and what they outlined for me is Skipper literally just kind of sat down and drew a scatter chart, X, Y graph, X graph, number of subscribers, uh, theoretically, Y graph, monthly price, theoretically, and tried to figure out how to get to the revenue point where you are generating as much operating income from the streaming business as you currently are from linear. And the reaction among the Disney executives at that time was pretty much a big collective, oh, fuck, um, because you can't do it. The, the numbers just don't bear out. You would have to figure out the how many people would pay how much money, and it's just you're either charging people so much that they're not going to pay for it or not enough to make up for the revenue gap. And so this has been a conversation through a presentation that that Mayor and Skipper made to the Disney board in December of 2017 through the launch of ESPN Plus, which is not, we've always thought about it as an ancillary product to ESPN, but what it really is, is sort of the infrastructure that was being created so that when this inevitable full-scale pivot happened, they would be ready. They would have a streaming service up and running. It's the similar logic that drove Jeff Zucker and Jason Kyler to want to create CNN Plus. And now we have arrived at this moment, I think, and this is why the, the journal article was sort of significant in my world, at which like Disney is fully admitting on the record, this is not a question of if, this is a question of when. And the ramifications of that for Disney are massive, but they are similarly massive for everyone in the business because Disney is the channel really that is carrying and sustaining live television in our increasingly DTC streamer era. Once that gets taken away and once the linear business gets cannibalized, the financials aren't going to be there for ESPN to continue and, and for any network to sort of continue paying the money that it's paying to have the, the production value it has, the hosts and that it has, the personalities that it has. And the whole business is fundamentally going to change when that happens, which will be uh, in the course of the next few years, five at the most. Well, this definitely validates reporting you had a, a year plus ago that 
that everything was on the table to to quote Iger about ESPN dating back, you know, to years and and your so to speak that. People tend to sentimentalize Iger's relationship to sports. Oh, he's always sitting, you know, in the second row at Knicks games and Clippers games. Clippers too. games, yeah. I think he went to Texas football <laughs> games with with Will, one of the you know one of the younger kids. But you know, on the Iger revenge tour, he is a stone cold killer, and I think that he's valuing everything. And you make a second great point here, Dylan, which is that. The cable business, and this explains the, the calamity that we're sort of experiencing as an industry, was just the most extraordinary business model ever conceived by man. People paid for so much stuff that they didn't want, and, and that was the tremendous sort of EBITDA machine of ESPN. It was in 100 million homes, and people were paying, you know, uh, inadvertently, you know, five bucks, right, right that, that Disney took off the top of the table just to have it in their bundle, when you deal with the direct-to-consumer audience, you're focused on the total addressable market of people who actually really want to watch those games. And we live in a niche media environment where people can follow the scores online. They may not want to watch the quote-unquote national game. People care about their tribes, as we know. They care about their, you know, their Big Ten football or their ACC baseball or their local market professional hockey team. And ESPN, we forget, is not in the storage business. It's in the moving business. It pays extraordinary amounts to for the right to rebroad to broadcast these sports events. They do not go into a library after the fact. It's not like Netflix spending a, an extraordinary amount of money on The Crown and having that in its catalog forever. ESPN has a much more high wattage and expensive barrier to entry here. And as you say, this this was. Part of the argument for CNN Plus, I found myself reconsidering CNN Plus ever so slightly before, again, realizing it was a, a terrible idea. ESPN is the strongest cable business out there. It's probably the strongest cable asset that's ever been created. And there's such a patina of fear and horror, I think, around this move that ESPN will never be able to be again what it was, that it just makes you wonder what's going to happen to everyone else who tries to go over the top. You know, if you look at Paramount Global, that's a $11 billion company that's made up of a zillion once extraordinary cable assets. It just seems like we, we read a new chapter of this obituary every week, not to get too morose, but um, but it does seem quite dark. No, that, that that's absolutely right. And I think in, in retrospect, that the whole model that we've lived in throughout our lifetimes is a total anomaly like the the idea that all that these businesses particularly the ones that had live sports were being propped up by subscribers who were effectively paying you know this like monumental private tax for programming that they weren't even watching and that this is what made these businesses so lucrative obviously in addition to the advertising that i think in retrospect feels like we, we will never go back to those days and 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 what's so hard about this and the reason this does feel so monumental is now all of a sudden you have to make you, you, you these companies sort of have to make their money in the old fashioned way which is you the people who want the product are going to be the people who pay for it which means that they're going to have to pay more that is not sort of caked into the habit the, the habits of consumers right now particularly when it comes when it comes to sports and so i think that that's what's going to make this so challenging and then of course the other issue here is it's not just 
the early skipper scatter chart calculation, it's not just a question of how do we match the money we used to be making. It's a different environment where thanks to Amazon and Apple and thanks also to, you know, like Fox, which can afford to spend heavily on sports because I, my, my assumption is the Murdochs are just going to sell it pretty soon. How do you keep pace when the sports rights are getting so high? And if the sports rights get so high and that's what you're fighting for, because that's really what drives the business, where are you going to make the cuts elsewhere? These are going to be, you know, I, I think what we're going to see here, and, and maybe it's a bearish worst case scenario, but we're going to see ESPN have to be a little bit smarter with its money. And that money is going to go to the sports rights so that they can maintain some sort of competitive edge. And that is going to come at the cost of not just the rank and file staff there, but I think even a lot of the anchors that, that sports fans such as you, know, you and I are quite familiar with. There's a world in which ESPN, the streaming network, effectively just becomes a home for live sports games and not so much the sort of, you know, content that exists around that, the sports center and, you know, they just hired Pat McAfee and all this. Like, I don't know if you can justify paying those guys in a world where you can barely justify the cost you're, you're spending to stay competitive with live sports. Well, a, a couple quick thoughts to get out on this topic before we, we turn our attention to CNN and the messenger, what the hungry people want to hear us talk about. One, I wonder if we are all have a, a bias and a predisposition to assuming that the next thing follows a business model of the previous thing. I assume that when they first talked about making ESPN its own sort of standalone business unit inside Disney, that they were doing it to allow for things that might be controversial, such as sports gambling or micro betting or things like that, that probably don't fit inside the ethos of a family company. And so I wonder... Uh, I, I agree with everything that you're suggesting about the future of ESPN, but I wonder if the business model changes, that if e that ESPN becomes much more of a transactional platform where you're not just watching a game, but you're able to be engaged at a level of fandom that doesn't quite exist now, or maybe you're you're betting 20 bucks that LeBron makes the next free throw or, or you know, four to one odds that, that he misses it. And I have a feeling that... If since they can't reclaim the extraordinary margins of, of cable, that they're going to try and get consumers to pay multiple times. And having an account to ESPN is just going to be table stakes. And beyond that, you almost have like a kind of Robin Hood sports trading app element uh, there. Yeah. That's right. But and those are the conversations that are happening inside right now, which is um, how do we how do we capitalize on the rise of sports betting? The problem is that Disney still feels very reticent about about running the sports book itself for all of the sure. damage that might do to the brand, for the regulatory headaches, the disclosures, whatnot. What it, it does seem very comfortable with doing is licensing its brand to another sports book and thereby sort of in exchange for lending its its that brand and the sort of marketing the massive marketing machine that it has it can make up significant revenue there, but but it doesn't look like they're willing to own that business on their own. It's going to be a licensing deal. And, and so how much revenue can you make up in that arrangement? I don't know. But, but I agree with you. They're going to find different ways to go deeper on the existing consumer base that they have, whether that's 15 or 20 or 25 million people. Yeah, and I, and I think that they can still do it with a with a kind of product layer that, that's outsourced to a third party. Maybe they'll get there. I think sentiment is changing quickly on this topic, but you made another good point. We talk a lot on the show about CNN, as we will again uh, in the next segment. 
to me, we've talked about this privately, SportsCenter, uh, specifically in ESPN in general, is precisely the leading indicator of what CNN is going to do. We both grew up on this show. Iger made extraordinary nine-figure investments in not just talent, but new studios, new sets. And then about seven or eight years ago, he saw that it was going to be going away, that Twitter had taken some of the enthusiasm out of it, that people were watching their sports differently. And you didn't need Patrick and Oberman and, you know, uh, the late, great Stu Scott and uh, Berman and all these guys. You just you didn't need them. Uh, it was totally fine to, to replace them with former pro athletes who, who made a fraction of their salary. And I have a strong uh, belief that ESPN continues to fight it, the margin game. I think CNN will continue its own version of this. And ESPN proved that the paradigm works. We'll see. Anyway, more CNN from us in a second. And we're going to talk about The Messenger as well, which is our favorite new media company from the great minds of Jimmy Finkelstein and Richard Mad Dog Beckman. Back after the break. Dylan, it wouldn't be Media Monday if there wasn't a CNN mention here. You did an incredible job reporting on the fallout from the Trump town hall, which seems to my mind and from your reporting that almost more than any other event that's befallen the network in the past year, this had the most resonance and this had the most attendant heartache. You broke the fourth wall on the piece and explained that you talked to more than 40 people and this had them more riled up. Can you give us a flavor of the sentiment uh, without obviously divulging um, any of the sourcing? Yeah, I just, I have never felt, and as you said, we have been covering CNN um, through all of the, the various stages of the chaos for 18 months now. It's never felt this bleak. It really hasn't. And it has never felt so overwhelming. There is this fundamental disconnect between Chris Licht and his bosses who seem to just charge ahead with full conviction, almost religious conviction in the mission, and at least a stated conviction in Chris as the leader. And meanwhile, below him, there are, it, it, it is, I, I can't, again, I can't get into the sourcing, but it is just overwhelming how many people feel like whether they agree with the mission of sort of, you know, a more centrist CNN or don't agree with that mission. And there is, there are differences there. They, they have no faith in, in Chris as the leader. They feel like he is the wrong man for the job. And they feel like th that he doesn't have the right instincts for how to do this. They, they don't feel like they have a line into what he's actually thinking. They see him sort of in a bunker uh, surrounded by a very small inner circle of, of sort of yes men who are living in an alternate reality. And I've never, in fact, at any news organization I've covered, seen those sentiments so widely felt, nor have I seen them so at odds with the feelings of the people running the company. And I think the question is, it seems to me, based off of who I'm talking to, that, that barring some radical fundamental shift, he's too far gone to win back that trust. And so the question is, is it sustainable to have uh, a parent company pushing forward with this strategy and investing in a leader who has lost the room? Is that a sustainable model? Obviously, 
the people who get to make the decisions here are Chris Lick, David Zaslav. And, and, and again, like where are, the, where are the folks that, you know, so many of these folks at CNN, where are they going to go? They're not going to go to Fox. They're probably not going to go to MSNBC. Broadcast is dying. Um, these people are television people. And, and there is still a great deal of pride in CNN, I think, as evidenced by the remarks that Christiane Amanpour made at the Columbia Journalism School last week. Um, and people are sort of starting to feel a little bit more emboldened, like they want to speak out. At the same time, they fear retribution. These are people who depend on these jobs or depend on the careers that they've built. And so maybe this thing just sort of continues along where, where no one seems happy, where the ratings are down and stay down. And that all somehow works in the broader Zaslav vision for, for what he wants CNN to do and what he wants it to be when he reaches his next M&A deal. But it, it's, it is a very bleak scenario at Hudson Yards. And I should add, it's a very bleak scenario at CNN Washington, at CNN Atlanta, at CNN Los Angeles, at CNN London. These sentiments are being felt, felt globally at CNN. And, and it's pretty spectacular and heartbreaking to watch. I don't want to be insensitive to the um, perceived slights uh, and the recriminations and misgivings, but if you could put your finger on it, what do these journalists and anchors and producers and executives want? If, if they could snap their uh-huh. fingers and actually, you know, barring the, the, the return of, of, of Jeff and Allison on um, on horseback, you know, on white stallions coming in to turn back time, which I, I don't actually don't think they want either, what do you feel actually is the the true north here? Uh, I don't think anybody wants the Trump era to come back. Is certainly uh, that was a very stressful time for these people. I don't think anyone feels like it's reasonable to expect the overturning of this uh, inexorable linear decline. Obviously, Licht has pissed people off, but what do they what do they want? It's a great question. I, a few things stand out to me. Some maybe noble, most of, most of them sort of selfish and ignoble. Fundamentally, I, I don't think they like the humiliation and, and near irrelevance of, of working at a network that now sometimes comes in fourth place behind Newsmax. It doesn't feel good to be, you know, going on tele. I, I, we, I recognize as, as Peter and you and I often discuss on the show that, that the audience for cable news is small to begin with, but there's a real feeling of influence when you go on television, and that the influence is greater than the than the ratings metrics bear out. They don't feel that right now. They feel like a that the network has sort of been a laughing stock of the industry, and that more broadly. They're not driving an audience. I, I think, too, you know, one line in my story last week was not about any of the talent that's been sort of kicked out or, or, or thrown out uh, you know, in rather spectacular fashion, but someone like Brianna Keeler, who, who is actually, this, this is the case for a lot of people. These were people at CNN who felt under Jeff Zucker that they were building careers, building identities for themselves, building brands for themselves, as terrible as it is to say. And, and that they, they were growing as sort of pseudo-celebrities and personalities. And now at this new CNN, they are sort of just reading headlines from a teleprompter, encouraged not to speak out, not to say anything individual or unique. And they sort of feel like, well, anyone could do this. I mean, you, you could hire anybody to do this. You could hire AI to do this. Like, they, they feel stunted, I think, in that regard. And then third, I, I wouldn't under... Please, like as someone who's worked at CNN and NBC, I hope our 
readers and subscribers never underestimate how much of an ego-driven business cable and television news is generally and how much people need sort of reassurance and need validation and need to believe that they are special and that they are part of something. And from Chris, they just feel distance. I think they just feel a sense that like, they don't know what he wants or, or if they do know what, you know, the only thing that they really know that he wants is he wants Caitlin Collins in prime time, right? Every, everything else, th- these are people who have spent decades in some cases at CNN who, who felt like they have been the face of CNN or at least a part of this like grander mission and that they were highly relevant and that they were highly visible. And I think they don't feel relevant or visible or special anymore on camera or off camera and I think that is really eating away at them. And all of that, of course, is playing out against the backdrop of this broader question about what CNN's role is in this very strange political time when the threat of, of, a, of a Trump 2.0 presidency is there. And they don't want, they don't necessarily, a lot of those folks don't necessarily want to play a role in that. It's an incredible saga and on it goes. Dylan, before we get you out of here, a couple quick thoughts on The Messenger, please, which debuted this week. Of course, Puck listeners know that this is the brainchild of Jimmy Finkelstein, he of The Hill, and briefly the, um, I guess, the sort of pre-Todd Bowley era trades like THR and and Adage, Adweek, I forget the one that Michael Wolf edited uh, Mm, when you were in Adweek, yes, when you were in short pants. And Richard Mad Dog Beckman, (laughs) who I know, um, listeners uh, remind me, is is an obsession of mine. Beckman was the CMO of Condé Nast during the the era when it was at its apotheosis of of Condé Nastness. Anyway... Dylan, what do you make of this $50 million, 200-some journalists, open web, non-subscription generating media entity? Well, yeah. I mean, let, let's just bring our listeners right, right into the room and the, and the conversations that I think we've all been having for a long time leading up to this thing's launch. I think everyone thought this, at least most people I talked to, whether they were on the editorial side, the advertising side of this industry thought and and would take it to the bank that this was going to be a a disaster. They didn't understand why you needed to spend this much money to create this kind of product, hire this many people to to write copy that does not seem at all distinguishable from anything you're finding on any other mass media market site. And then moreover, like the the sort of delusional ambitions of the the revenue targets that they put out there and that they were going to be like sort of, you know, competing with the likes of the New York Times or the Washington Post. Uh, it just, none of it made sense. And it all seemed to come from this guy who's for Finkelstein, who sort of had this vision that he could create something that consumers weren't really hungering for. And so this thing finally drops. And I think the, the mockery and the schadenfreude, well, that that's easy enough to do. I think in some cases is warranted here. I mean, you've got they're churning out like two hundred stories an hour of, of things that are like sensational, clickbaity stuff that seems like it was designed for like the nineties. I don't know who's reading this. I know they're paying certain journalists a hell of a lot of money to work there. I don't understand. I don't think anyone does. They've got they've got other problems they'll have to deal with, which I think are being sort of monitored by other media watchdogs about the fact that like you know. For every 99 opinion columns written by a man, there's one written by a woman. 
Anyway, all sorts of things are going to run into. The only thing I would add to all of this, and then I'd be very interested to hear your perspective on it. It seems to me that as we approach this moment when artificial intelligence is inevitably going to start eating away at some jobs in journalism, because it can just create the spot commodity articles that, that 30 or 40 different media outlets write about the, the boy who fell down the well or the law that got passed or the, the team that went missing. Um, it seems like the messenger is like the very first amuse-bouche on, on, on AI's menu and that it, these articles could be written by AI almost today. Uh, save for the occasional Trump exclusive interview or something like that. And so not only do I, does this feel like a relic of the past, it feels like something that is very much not positioned to sustain the future. Yeah, I think people in the industry were, were sort of actually expressing almost annoyance at the messenger that it seems to have not absorbed the learnings of the uh, Web 2.0 BuzzFeed Vice Vox era that we've kind of been memorializing on this show for the last number of weeks. Not just that the content is in many cases undifferentiated and, and, and there's a large payroll, but simple tactical things. It's programmatic advertising. If you pop on now, you're probably getting a, you know, seven cent CPM, you know, ETF ad for interactive brokers, or you're seeing a site that doesn't capture email. So you can't actually create a relationship between the company and the user to keep them back there, which is essential, even if it's an an ad-supported business like Axios, which did an incredible job showing people how to, how to um, retain a sticky audience. One does get the sense that this is uh, an attempt by Finkelstein to remain relevant uh, at this stage in his career. It's probably not a terrible lane to pick. I hate that term, but so to speak, that is sort of upscale New York Post, you know, a little, a little bit of the Daily Mail, a little bit of the flavor of Drudge. But the brilliance of those businesses is that they have limited fixed costs. You know, the Drudge Report is an extraordinary business because it's run by a small team of people who aggregate the work elsewhere on the internet and they compile it in a way that fulfills the needs of a very large audience. The Daily Mail essentially does a similar thing except that it's aggregating uh, a million sources with um, sort of low fee uh, editorial talent. Here, they're paying writers a ton of money to do work that, as you say, doesn't necessarily always fall over the AI differentiator, at least as we see it in the next year or two. And, and um, many of us are paying active attention to that. So it's early. $50 million will last you a very long time if that's indeed what's in the bank account. And they probably have time to learn. But I'm constantly surprised that media companies decide to hire so many people before they even test a product in market. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being iterative and, um, and learning as you go. It's a long game that we're playing here. So anyway, Jimmy's a smart guy. He's going to figure it out. Doesn't need my advice, although maybe he should take it. And Dylan, I will see you in the Slack. Uh, good talking to you, brother. And uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.